Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. Joining me today is my co-briefer, Devery Velasquez. Hello, Devery. Good to see you all bundled up. We're also joined by some familiar faces, Ketsi Tipe, Pablo Vega Behar, and making his very first appearance uh, on the briefing from Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, we are very excited to have Jacob Burns. Hello, Jacob. I promise we'll be good to you. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> nice to have you on. And today we are going to continue, as we're doing almost all month long, uh, our conversation about Business Bets 2022. We're very lucky because this connects to our broader conversation that we call Culture RX, where we talk about everything health-related. Um, and obviously, it's pretty hard to talk about bets uh, in, in today's society without talking a little bit about health and wellness. And so our big bet uh, for 2022 is the advancement of AI in discovering uh, the next drug, the next treatment, and thinking about the ways in which huge data sets can improve care for everybody. And so what we wanted to do today was to look a little bit at this uh, at a high level, right? I was just saying earlier, if we're talking about like mRNA polymerases, we have strayed a little bit too far. What I want to understand today, and I think we're going to get to, but I know we'll get to, is asking ourselves questions about what does this mean for culture broadly? Not just the ability to access care faster, but what will it say about maybe our relationship to, say, care providers, to pharma companies, even to AI and augmented intelligence? So a lot of cool stuff here. Um, you know, uh, CRISPR, your, uh, your VAs, all this kind of great stuff. But let's take a look at the elements of culture map, right? And I actually think what's really interesting here about these elements of culture is that they are not particularly, are, these are not the ones that we traditionally associate with science, right? Usually these are ones, or, or, or health. What we're seeing here is a little bit ones that are more associated with um, artificial intelligence. Uh, so we see things like constant connection, flattening, life logic. Um, frictionless is, is an important one. Devery, did I step on all of the trends that you thought were interesting or, or what, else, what else here in this map? Do you think it's important to understand what's going to drive the cultural relevance of uh, this connection between AI and uh, you know next generation healthcare? Definitely, lagging laws is one that I think in the near term, the next two to three years, maybe as this becomes popular, AI and machine learning, uh, we'll we'll have to policymakers are going to need to have to are go, going to need to catch up to the rapid changing uh, digital world. Definitely. Yeah, we actually, yeah, there's a signal to that effect coming up and I think that's a good, pretty solid call out. So let's move into our first signal here. Uh, last year, Google parent company Alphabet launched a new drug discovery company in the UK called Isomorphic Labs. Uh, Hennis, uh, Dennis Hassabis, the founder and CEO of Isomorphic Labs said in a blog post um, that he hopes to reimagine the entire drug discovery process from the ground up. Can you tell where we got this bet from? Um, Isomorphic Labs plans to use artificial intelligence software to create those new drugs and medicines. Now, identifying drugs is usually a long and complex trial and error process that involves combining lots of different compounds in lots of different ways and praying that you get it right. Now, several companies, including London's Benevolent AI and San Francisco's Atomwise, believe that AI can be sped up, uh, can speed up the process and are also playing in the same space. Quote, we believe that the foundational use of cutting edge computational and AI methods can help scientists take their work to the next level and massively accelerate the drug discovery process, wrote Hasebis. Uh, now, of course, this all comes uh, as culture is still working to process 
uh, not only what AI means for us in general, but also the record speed at which the COVID-19 vaccines were unrolled in a way that freaked uh, millions and millions of people out. Some of us were very excited by that. Others were deeply skeptical. So Jacob, on our very first, on your very first briefing appearance, let's talk about innovation. Silicon Valley loves speed, right? Uh, moving fast and break things, that's kind of their motto. Um, but do the lessons of 2021 suggest that consumers, especially in the space of healthcare, might not share that same priority for, for speed? Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I think there's kind of two processes you have to break down. I mean, Silicon Valley likes to think about move fast, break things. And that's very applicable in the upfront research process. But mm. the FDA regulatory process is the FDA regulatory process. And there's no speed, uh, like there's no speeding up the process of actually doing clinical trials and testing. And that's kind of the key vital proof point for any drug kind of becoming reality. I think that's something that in the case of COVID was very much visible to people. It's very rare that you hear somebody who's actually familiar with the background, like the decades of research that it might take to actually get to the point where a drug is viable for testing. In COVID, yeah. it was very, very clear that you were you had a start date, a finish date, things were fast-tracked. The entire FDA approval process that usually could take years was compressed in this case, which might have like contributed some of the wariness that people had. So I don't necessarily think that AI discovery that could compress that decades of research in some cases to a much shorter time frame is going to be as visible in most cases uh, with like future drugs that are discovered this way. Yeah, fair enough. And also, we are coming off the conviction of Elizabeth Holmes and a new cultural understanding, right, of the fact that like you tech can say what it wants to say, but we definitely need some uh, some safeguards in there to slow down the process. Ketsy, I'll ask you real quick. I'm, I'm interested in the fact that Google is doing this, right? I mean, do you think that people are, uh, uh, do you think that, I guess Google has a stronger reputation here than say Pfizer or AstraZeneca? If you were talking to your doctor and they said, you know, Google uh, helped develop this drug, would that instill a sense of confidence in you or maybe freak you out? Well, Google can rely on the fact that it's a universal brand. Many people didn't even know of Pfizer and Moderna before the pandemic started, and many don't even know of them past their brand name. I do think that Google has the advantage of brand awareness, but it does have known internal issues like um, antitrust and privacy, which affects its image when discussing topics to do with health data collection and anything around that. Um, I think the two big questions are one, how will data be collected and what approach will be used? And two, will they be new products um, it will bring to market and how will those products be competitive on its platform because it promotes yeah. other products on there as well. Um, and I think how it deals with these issues and those questions will impact its overall image as a holding company and one that's new to the tech medical space. Very well said. Pablo, you told us uh, off camera that you used to work in uh, health and, and big data. Um, I'm curious your thoughts here as we start this briefing is, um, is this the, you know, was this uh, coming? Was this the kind of thing that we should have expected for, for years and years? Or do you think that the, um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and the, the incredible way that we sped up um, those uh, vaccines maybe changed the game for, for drug discovery? I, I think it's been a long time coming, but mm -hmm. I just want to point out what Jacob mentioned and, and reiterate the fact that yes, AI can accelerate part of the process, but at the end of the day, we're talking about health and patient safety. So there's still an FDA process that all of these discoveries have to go through. So that, that was a really good point by Jacob. 
Yeah, until the Supreme Court strikes down the FDA. Um, <laughs> okay, let's move on here a little bit. Uh, Devery hinted at this a bit earlier. So Dr. Kathleen Warner writes that many in the health space are thrilled at the possibilities AI presents for the field, right? Um, but with that potential comes some level of uncertainty. Quote, questions being asked and discussed are on standards for codes slash algorithms and government relations, along with ethical and social responsibilities to ensure these technologies are used appropriately and correctly, the good doctor writes. Um, there's an old maxim in computer science that computers um, shouldn't be allowed to make executive decisions because they cannot be held accountable like executives. And I think that's what's at play here too. Uh, Warner hints at this and suggests there are big questions um, about our desire to use all that data to speed up uh, you know, drug discovery process, but also understanding that there are real human implications behind this, right? Um, that's probably where the FDA comes in. So what are some of the areas that Dr. Warner says we need to pay attention to? Well, data breaches, um, fairness and equity. I love that she points that out. Legal concerns, ethical concerns, and of course, lagging laws, just as Devery pointed out earlier, are still things that we don't really have a lot of sense of what they're gonna look like in the AI, in the space of AI drug development. But it's not just figuring out the right compounds that matter here. Dr. Warner posits that AI can be used to diagnose patients faster, speed up clinical trials, spot rare diseases, or even catch the early stages of overdose or drug dependency, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, that might be a big deal for a healthcare system that in 2022 is worn pretty thin uh, by caring for COVID. Now, Ketsy, I'm curious about maybe how different generations think about this. You know, uh, obviously when we ask ourselves ethical questions, uh, we have to put this lens of intersectionality on it. And the one that I wanted to focus on now is, is just the idea of age, right? I mean, boomers are accessing more healthcare than ever. They're gonna access enormous amounts of it over the next 20 to 30 years. Um, but obviously they are a bit more technologically skeptical generation than say Gen Z. And so I'm curious if this whole process, uh, act of processing the idea that AI is creating some of these solutions is gonna look different to different age groups or, or just different groups in general. Um, yeah, uh, I do think that boomers will be more skeptical because they didn't grow up with personalized tech and algorithms in their formative years, like um, the earlier generations. Um, I think in terms of government regulation, we are seeing some changes. Um, the Platform Accountability Technology Act and the abbreviated Too Long Didn't Read Act, um, which are recently just passed, deals with how tech companies should ethically approach collecting data from their consumers as well as sharing it. Um, there are more acts like this that are trying to be passed, um, mm -hmm. and it will be interesting to see how these companies follow these and how they may even manage to get around these laws, um, and if any of these changes will shape how future generations interact with and view the brand or just medical brands in general. Yeah, and I think it's obviously important to point out if we're thinking about, you know, generations here for a second, that, you know, there are plenty of baby boomers who will think this is really cool. Our third act, our third act uh, intern alumni, shout out to all of you, um, might think this is amazing. And, you know, there's lots of techno skepticism in Gen Z. So it is the kind of thing that we'll have to see. But I, I think you're right that um, we're going to need some rules to codify this, right? That'll help bring this all together. Okay, let's move on to uh, the, uh, the, um, one of the uh, COVID-19 vaccine providers that we skipped, uh, Johnson & Johnson, and talk about the patient journey. Devery? Yeah, so there's a new multi-year collaboration between Johnson & Johnson Medical Devices Companies, also called JJMDC for short, and Microsoft, in which Microsoft will be established as the medical device company's preferred cloud provider for its digital surgery solutions. Uh, Dr. Peter Sholem, MD and head of JJMDC's 
Office of Digital Innovation says, quote, our instruments, which before were practically or purely mechanical, can now generate data. We have to think about how we're going to aggregate and process that data. He goes on to imply that by putting data on a unified cloud platform, physicians will have easier access to the data in order to improve their performance judge and judgment around a patient case. Uh, JJMDC technology ranges from surgical robots to medical instruments like orthopedic and interventional tools. Microsoft will help the company develop a dashboard that monitors the entire surgery ecosystem. For the company's SVP and CIO, Larry Jones, teaming up with Microsoft was the right choice because, quote, they, have, they also have the off-the-shelf solutions that facilitate building this platform in a much faster, robust, compliant way to achieve the kind of connectivity and insights that we want. Going forward, AI and machine learning could extract data from a patient's health history to flag potential risks that might arise during a procedure or help the medical team identify if a patient is at higher risk for specific diseases or conditions. Additionally, physicians across the healthcare spectrum can access the same patient data uh, information all at once. And as, as a patient myself who utilizes a tool similar to this one, I think there's a huge ease in being able to act as my own admin assistant and managing medical files and, and having you know, everything streamlined uh, for so many doctors to see at once. Uh, according to McKinsey though, I read that the top three machine learning pain points are data, uh, data difficulties, technology troubles, and security snags. And Pablo, we, you sort of touched on this previously, but I'm curious on your thoughts of how might a surgical robot pose a, a data or security risk? Uh, so the, the, the short answer here is there's always going to be some level of risk whenever you're dealing with data. Uh, and right now we're talking about data in the healthcare space, but you can think of it in breaches that credit card companies have had and, and personal and credit data has been exposed. Also, there are concerns for other companies, uh, very famously 23andMe going public uh, and consumers are, are afraid that that type of data might be exposed. So the short answer is yes, there's always a risk. Now, the longer, more nuanced answer is you have to weigh those risks against what are the benefits that we're getting out of, uh, out of this new technology. Also, this is a personal anecdote. I used to work in healthcare as a data scientist, mm -hmm. and I can tell you that uh, within the company where I used to work, there were many measures, both automated and human review measures, to ensure that no personal health information was inadvertently shared or released. Uh, so cybersecurity, data processing, uh, and review processes are always in place at these companies, are, are, and they are very important. The companies do care about not releasing PHI, personal health information. Yeah, Debra, I jump in here for, for just one second. I mean, to me, the, the bigger threat here is less personal and more corporate, right? Like, if I was going to worry about uh, data here, it would be potentially, like, corporate espionage coming out of uh, China or something, stealing IP and, and, and technology information. I worry a little bit less about, um, you know, my, my own personal data, because I'm like, what, what would they do with that? But at the same time, if, if you have to worry about corporate espionage, right? If you have to worry about your, you know, your IP being stolen, that means companies like Johnson & Johnson might not roll that out. And that might impact patients like you, Debra, who, who yeah. want this uh, connectivity, right? Yeah. Um, so let's 
let's look at how a couple of brands and startups are, are, are thinking here beyond just Johnson and Johnson. So, you know, uh, the Super Bowl is only a couple of weeks away. So why don't we talk about the NFL? Yeah, so the NFL, uh, National Football League and Amazon Web Services or AWS just announced the results of its artificial intelligence competition, which challenged data scientists to teach computers to automatically detect players involved in head impact injuries from NFL game footage. More than a thousand data uh, analysts from 65 countries competed in the challenge and five winning models were awarded a total of $100,000. First place finisher was Kepei Matsuda from Osaka, Japan, who says the challenge required contestants to consider high dimensional data in developing a way to identify specific players on the field involved in each helmet impact. These computer vision models, as they're called, will help the NFL and AWS continue building the digital athlete, which is a virtual representation of an NFL player that can be used to better predict and ultimately help prevent player injury. Quote, AWS and the NFL are, are fostering an understanding of how to treat and rehab injuries in the, year in the near term and eventually predict and prevent injuries in the future leveraging data, says Dr. Priya Panapali, who is the <clears throat> sorry, who is the senior manager at the Amazon Machine Learning Solutions Lab. So, Jacob, this question is for you. Uh, how might this kind of data science technology be applied and picked up, maybe across other major sports, uh, for injury prevention across the sector? It's really interesting because obviously the NFL like faces an existential threat in the form of mm. head injuries. There's a question in the future, will parents even want children to right. play a sport that can potentially lead to lifelong consequences? So they have a huge incentive to do all they can to treat this. But there's a lot of applicability that we can think of in terms of other sports, in terms of applying AI to like analyze video. Like a kind of comparable safety issue might be like if you think about at NASCAR, I mean, car crashes and maintenance issues like within the pit create like huge safety issues for drivers. So potentially you could be analyzing um, not only just car crash data or internal like driver like footage like within the cars to see like what's happening in different instances of car crash to improve like car safety. You can also look at maintenance like records and see how different pit crews are maintaining their cars, what types of lapses and judgment to improve processes in that sense. And I think the even bigger opportunity that's applicable across all sports is uh, looking at uh, preventing um, like repetitive motion injuries. So mm. whether it's golf or baseball or like any, really like a lot of endurance sports in general, athletes in the long term see a lot of like shortening their career from repetitive movement injuries. So let's say you're a baseball player, every single one of your swings is going to be pretty much uh, on video. An AI tool can analyze when your form is kind of dropping like to a suboptimal form that could lead to injuries. So coaches can step in and like kind of correct your, your stance or your, uh, your throwing motion. So that's an opportunity to lengthen players careers and make sure that they're staying healthier longer. Yeah. And maybe the AI can also be used to understand the uh, Australian visa system so you don't get deported from the Australian Open. <laughs> right. Ben, um, I, if I, if yeah, I could add ahead. something really quick to that, I, I think that almost that can also go beyond professional sports where it could be a consumer product where let's say that you're a casual runner, but you want to analyze, like Jacob said, your stride to make sure that you don't get injuries from the repetitive mm -hmm. motion of running. Yeah. 
and you're going exactly where mine was. Like I brought up NASCAR for a reason, like looking at car yeah. crash footage. That's something that every car company in America could be using for design as well. Yeah. So that's interesting too, just very quickly, because I think when we have, listen, we do have big data to measure this stuff. It's just attached yeah. to your smartwatch mostly, yeah. or like a smart ring if you have Aura, which isn't quite good enough to understand like if you're doing your stride wrong, you know, like I like to bike, am I extending my knee enough to avoid uh, injury that way, right? Like a smartwatch is not gonna tell me that. So um, they're definitely gonna have to be some hardware fixes to understand this, even though we're getting very good at the software fixes. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, let's move on. Uh, Dr. Chris Manzi figures that AI, uh, figures that AI will make the, uh, the healthcare of today look like the medical care of the 1960s uh, in, in just a couple years. Now he runs San Francisco-based viz.ai. Uh, which uses artificial intelligence to speed up stroke care, a condition where time is notoriously of the essence. Um, its software uh, cross-references CT images of a, a patient's brain with its database of scans to find early signs of large vessel occlusion strokes. Uh, it then alerts doctors who can see the images on their phones, cutting off hours of time that would otherwise take to get a patient into surgery. Quote, we have an expression, time is brain. Uh, because in a stroke, every one second translates to 2 million brain cells that die, and every uh, one minute of delay translates to an extra week of disability, uh, Hansi writes. Uh, this uh, whole goal, underscoring the speed theme of our briefing, is to accelerate care via machine learning and digital technology. That same technology could expand between uh, outside of just the stroke space to other spaces, other diseases where speed is really critical. Think things like pulmonary embolisms, heart attacks. Etc. Um, the company has uh, blue chip investors raised $150 million in seed funding, not bad for a startup, and has created partnerships with well-known hospitals, including Mount Sinai and the Cleveland Clinic. Interestingly, it's a rare piece of AI innovation that has also been approved uh, for reimbursal by Medicare. Let's not forget about that government and uh, uh, side of things. And the founders are clear. I thought this was really interesting. The founders are really clear to point out that while it uses artificial intelligence, it considers itself augmented intelligence. It is not meant to replace doctors. It's meant to make them faster and better at their jobs. And Ketsy, I thought I'd bring you in here because I think that's really interesting strategic language around doctors and helping them rather than replacing them. And my question is, maybe what does this mean for adoption? You know, we talk a lot about automation impacting like factory workers and other blue collar workers or service jobs, but like cardiac surgeons make, a, you know, they are about as white collar as it gets and, and they may be freaked out. Uh, I guess these would be brain surgeons actually. Uh, they may be a little bit upset about being replaced by uh, robots. So um, what is your take here about this strategic language and what does it say about automation maybe more broadly in the healthcare space? Uh, yeah, so I think that this is a shift for doctors rather than them being phased out. Doctors could become consultants or even sponsors for these new products, uh, AI products. And as the online world continues to expand during the lockdown, there's definitely a growing space for medical influencers. They could build their brand by being an advocate or even critic of these products, which could help them gain a following and even draw more traction towards medical brands. Um, outside of doctors becoming influencers, I do think that AI can help them with diagnoses and performing some of their tasks but um, will require a new form of training for them, which could either make getting a medical degree easier or a lot harder. 
Yeah, I, I was thinking about that because my my question is sort of like, all right, so medical degrees are incredibly expensive, right? An MD, an RN is a little less expensive, but they do practically the same thing, right? Or a nurse practitioner, um, excuse me. And I, you know, you wonder if we're not moving to that consultant world as you were suggesting, uh, uh, Ketsy, you know, powered by AI, there might be people who might say like, listen, I, I you know, there is this opportunity here. If it's gonna cost half the amount for me to get that education, I might as well, do that. So there, there could be even bigger, um, you know, consequences to all this stuff. Okay, this is very top of mind because we are working on a project thinking about the modern pharmacy right now, Jacob and I. So let's talk about the AI pharmacist, Devery. Yeah, our next signal from Axios does a deep dive into the implications of AI in the world of drug development. Uh, to put things into perspective, developing <clears throat> Sorry, developing a new drug can take over a decade and cost an average of $2.8 billion. Following that is a series of regulations and clinical trials uh, that can take even more time. When it comes to failures in drug development, Isaac Bentwich, uh, CEO of Drug Discovery at Startup Curis, says, quote, Imagine you're building 10 skyscrapers and you can guarantee that nine will crumble, but you have no idea which ones will fall. So all you can do is build them up and charge a higher rent on the one that keeps standing, which reminds me of maybe New York. Uh, the plan is for <laughs> AI to swoop in as the hero and fix every frustrating part of drug development. One example is Existentia's Centaur Chemist platform, which compares millions of potential small molecules looking for a handful to synthesize, test, and optimize in the lab before selecting a can candidate for clinical trials, knocking down the process to months as opposed to years. There's also Lantern Pharma, uh, which works with digital healthcare company DeepLens to use AI to match the right kind of novel molecule with the right patient profile for accelerated clinical trials. Not only does this save time, but hundreds of millions of dollars in dev costs. The AI market for pharmaceuticals was just at $200 million in 2015 and is projected now to grow to 5 billion by, by 2024 while AI-related job listings in the drug industry have tripled since 2020. And as AI continues to disrupt major uh, development categories across various industries, it has yet to make a huge imprint on drug development, though uh, the long view of that is yet to be determined. So Ketsy, I'll ask you this uh, starting out. Uh, so experts predict that AI will cause a major positive disruption in drug development in the next 20 years. Uh, but this signal discusses uh, cost and time benefit. And I'm interested in your take, as you touched on it earlier, um, from a regulatory standpoint, what process do you think will have to be implemented in order for this to actually be practical and effective? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think it also relates to what you were saying earlier with um, there are a lot of tech advancements happening and I think that Congress or the speed at which laws are being passed, um, there's, a bit, there's a bit of a clash between that. Um, so I think that even if you are in Congress, for example, you do need to have an understanding of how these things work. Um, I think that if you only have a limited understanding, you only really understand it in broad terms. So even to um, try to draft regulations or bills or anything like that um, could be a challenge. Um, so I think that, um, like I said, we are seeing some bills being passed, but um, I do think that some will kind of slip away. Um, mm -hmm. But it's always easy to see. It's always interesting to see how these brands will get around it. 
Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the thing where it's like the states are probably going to lead here, right? Like I have <laughs> very little faith that uh, the federal government is going to be able to do anything here, but we might see lots of regulation come out of places like California or New York to help mm -hmm. set um, some of that that way forward. And I'll, I'll, I'll admit very quickly that, you know, so as I said, we're doing some work here about the pharmacy of the future for a client. And, you know, it's interesting to see AI here at the at one end of the funnel, right, at the sort of the drug discovery phase. And eventually that's going to bleed over and we're going to see uh, even more AI at the kind of like pharmacist and consumer uh, level. It's, it's bound to sort of change the whole industry. Okay, let's talk about one more, maybe a little bit fringier signal. If you thought we were getting through this without talking about mental health. You are, uh, well, I don't want to say crazy because we're not allowed to say that anymore. But, uh, <laughs> let's talk about the wellness industry and its relationship with AI and whether or not that's a little problematic. Debrie? Yeah, if you need to treat anxiety in the future, odds are the treatment won't just be therapy, but also an algorithm. And while wearable technologies, as we mentioned, uh, you know, remain available, they're still costly for the average consumer. Um, so therapy can now come in the form of a free 30-second download. Also called Emotion AI, Rosalind Picard, who is one of its pioneers, described it as, quote, a compute, uh, computing that relates to, arises from, or deliberately influences emotions. And despite a rush to build apps using Emotion AI, it's still in its infancy as a fix-all solution for therapeutic services. Currently, it cannot capture the diversity of human emotional experience and is often embedded with the programmer's own cultural bias. As the researchers Ruth Eilet and um, Anna Paiva write, effective comp computing demands that, quote, qualitative relationships must be quantified, a definite selection made from competing alternatives and internal structures must be mapped out onto software entities. So in short, this means that at best, metrics to predict emotions are an educated guess with serious limitations. As observed by Picard in the 1997 book credited for outlining this framework called effective computing, quote, emotional or not, computers are not purely objective. This lack of, of objectivity has complicated efforts to build emotional computing systems without built-in bias. The popularity of self-tracking has impacted growth on, of effective computing, therapeutics, and public health interventions. Over the course of the pandemic, governments and private companies have pumped funding into uh, the rapid development of remote sensors, applications, and AI for uh, quarantine enforcement, contact tracing, and health status screenings. But rather than addressing the lack of mental health resources, digital solutions may be creating new disparities in the provision mm -hmm. of services. Dr. Adam Miner, a clinical psychologist at Stanford argues, quote, an AI system may capture a person's voice in, and movement, which is likely related to a diagnosis like major uh, depressive disorder, but without more context and judgment, crucial information can be left out. Most importantly, these technologies can operate without clinic, uh, clinician oversight, or other forms of human support. Yet in the US, there remains no widely coordinated effort to regulate and evaluate digital mental health resources and products that rely on effective computing techniques. Digital products marketed as therapies are being deployed without adequate consideration of patients' access to te uh, technical resources and monitoring of vulnerable users. So I have a couple questions here. Uh, Pablo, I'll throw the first one to you. 
what is your first rea reaction to the data privacy point, knowing you know you've worked in this uh, industry before, and that's what you you know you have uh, the experience. I know that's something that a lot of us have uh, discussed. You know, just health data access, cybersecurity risks, how they're more intertwined now than ever. I'm interested interested in your take. So uh, there's there's a lot to unpack, even just on that one question. Uh, I think in terms of cybersecurity, we we covered it when we were talking about the the prior question uh, with uh, drug discovery and, and and using apps and having the app available to hospitals and and healthcare workers with your own private data. I think my first reaction for this particular signal was more on the front of will governments have or request access to a particular individual's information if they want to know more about their mental health and how mm. will they use that and will they use it in nefarious ways? I, I think that's not so much a concern or I hope it's not going to be so much a concern in countries like the US, for example, but maybe in other countries where without naming a specific one, but some of the ones that are more notorious for being more invasive in, into their citizens' private lives would that raise any uh, privacy concerns? Yeah, I'm interested in how, just for me, lagging law is an element of culture <clears throat> and just how what, how uh, new policies and laws regarding, you know, protection of, of data and access, um, like HIPAA, you know, how HIPAA will evolve in this new uh, future. Um, mm -hmm. Ketsi, I'm also curious, you know, is Emotion AI evolved enough to be trusted with something so delicate as people's mental health? I don't think um, it's there yet. I think just in general, um, AI is such a fascinating concept. Um, and again, um, I, I think when we look at just the results, um, it's easy to kind of project um, how things will be. But I think that there's so many um, challenges that come with it. Um, it takes a longer time. So I, I don't think it's there yet. Um, but I do think that um, it could help with diagnoses, maybe in mental health by looking at um, brain patterns or, or neural patterns, um, things like that. But I think maybe with direct therapy that relies more on one-to-one -one, uh, action, um, yeah. it may not be there yet. I, listen, I'll, I'll jump in here for, for one second. Kenzie, I just wanna pick up on your point because one thing that I, you know, in, in my research lately, thinking about big data in healthcare, one thing that this big data can do in the access to consumer um, consumer testing rather than like at, you know, in doctor's office testing is that it can provide a first step, right? It's not as good as you're never going to get a system that's good enough to be like, you know, here, like diagnosing like where the cancer is, right? Or the fact that you, uh, what's driving your clinical depression, but it might be a decent first step if you are experiencing some signs of depression to instead of just taking like a quiz online, to actually take something a little bit more grounded in data to say, you know, you really ought to see a, a therapist. The danger there is that people uh, take it and either it's wrong or they get the information and they don't do anything with it. So it, it has to be more than just the availability of this testing. It has to go to something else to say like, now it's time to call your doctor. Okay, um, let's jump into our In Other News segment here for one second. Um, okay, uh, if we're gonna talk about scientists, we have to talk about libraries. I'm gonna jump in really quick to the New York Times here for a second and ask you guys to check out this gorgeous library here. Can you all see it? It's beautiful. Amazing. Okay, so the New York Times style section uh, has a piece up this weekend about the home library 
of uh, a former uh, John Hopkins professor, uh, Dr. Richard Maxey of Baltimore. Apparently the impressive collection goes viral about once a year on the internet with this photo just going up of this incredible at-home library. And the article kind of wonders why. There are 51,000 titles in here, according to his son, Alan. Um, a decade ago, the most valuable pieces, including first editions of Moby Dick, some T.S. Eliot, works by Keats, uh, Wordsworth, and Shelley, were moved to some special collections on the uh, campus. And after uh, the, the professor died in 2019, what they describe as a SWAT team of conservationists came in to deal with this incredible library. And so the big question is, why is the internet so obsessed with this? Why does this keep popping back up? And there were some interesting guesses into the space, right? None using AI, unfortunately. One interview he tells the Times, there's something about the sensational abundance of seeing lots of things that gives us a little thrill. Also relevant, as the New York Times notes, this satisfying sense of organized chaos uh, and maybe some awe at someone having this high of ceilings in their house. <laughs> now, I'm gonna posit an idea here and I would like you guys to all weigh in on this, right? I think people freak out about this because I think it is the antithesis, the exact opposite of the ultra perfectly coded uh, Instagram library where people uh, you know, sort their books by color and they don't have that many books. This is clearly sorted by like just this guy's like own sense of what is right and wrong. It is the absolute antithesis of that uh, Instagram book shelfie, right? So let's do a quick round robin. You gotta pick one for your home. Do you want uh, Dr. Uh, do you want Dr. Maxi's library, or do you want that Insta perfect one that you always see, like in you know uh, anthropology ads? I'll start with you, Jacob. Uh, do we want the beautiful chaos or the beautiful organization? I'll go with uh, the good doctors. Uh, I think it also. I think one thing that the article doesn't touch on is the divide between do you want physical media or digital media? Totally. I think that's a big thing of the appeal because I, I have some passionate opinions on that but I'll go with the good doctor system. Okay, Ketsy, your turn. Um, hmm. I think, I mean, I agree with what Jacob said. Um, I think it does de depend on preference. I think if it is physical media, it can feel a bit more personalized. You know where you're putting it, you know where you left it. Um, I think if you invite someone over, it may not look as appealing, um, but again, um, there are advantages to having it digitally because you can just search it. Um, I so think you're I don't know. It's just, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just depends. Um, I would say both, right. but in different ways. <laughs> okay, Devry, what do we think? The very first impression I get, uh, just or you know, the first like once makes me want to pull my hair is the fact that the uh, the titles aren't facing the the entrance, like the person walking in wouldn't be oh, able yeah. to see 80% of the titles of these books. And it's just like my OCD brain. But when I walk in, I'm into a place like this, I would want to, you know, lean into a certain area and, and be inclined to pick up a book. But about 80% of these books would already take themselves off of that market for me because I couldn't easily access their titles. Oh, so, okay. So I think you're leaning more Instagram perfect here. Pablo, what's your take? My first impression was I would just love to have this amount of space in my New York apartment, whether it's beautifully organized <laughs> or organized chaos. But I'll go if with Devry. I think whole, yeah. go I'll go with Devry. My, my OCD brain uh, needs a little bit more organization than what yeah. I see here. 
Yeah. Um, okay. First of all, if you turn your whole apartment into a library, I think it could take up this amount of space. I actually grew up in a household that had like this many books, and I definitely picked up from my parents that like books are are intellectual trophies. Um, you know, you really worked at reading that book. So I kind of love this. I think it's really cool. And like the double height, like, yeah, this is a lot. It'd be a lot to dust. It wouldn't be great for my allergies, but um, I, I would love this in my own house. Okay, that's gonna take us through the briefing for the day. Uh, thank you to uh, to Jacob for his very first briefing appearance, to Ketsy, to Devery, and to Pablo. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday for our, on our LinkedIn page at New, uh, New York noon time uh, for all of our briefings. While you're there, jump in the comment section. Let us know your thoughts on drug discovery, on, on the value of speed uh, in, in healthcare, and perhaps your preferred library style. Um, if you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence system we use to build today's briefings, we'd love to take you through it. Uh, it gives us incredible confidence at a moment like this. So until tomorrow, consider yourselves briefed.